It's two in the morning. I'm tired, but staying awake next to my log burner as I sit for the second night with a glass of mead and keep a watchful eye on a happily bubbling tub nestled in the fireplace. We've reached the point where it's time to really crack on in the hunt for our hyperlocal, foraged and historic ale. I'm Ben Richards and this is Growing Beer. joining me again in this the third episode you'll have to excuse the slightly hushed tone to my voice tonight as i'm having to speak quietly as the rest of my family have long since gone to bed and i'm downstairs making sure that the heat coming from my fireplace keeps the experimental brew i have in front of me at a toasty 35 degrees centigrade why would you sit there all night on your own when even your dog has deserted you in search of sleep you ask an excellent question but one that i will get on to later in the episode Right now, the exciting thing is that the mead worked. You'll remember from episode 2 that I was combining honey and water to see if I could get a simple mead fermenting all on its own. Well, the news is Thomas was right. With good quality, raw honey, you can. In the end, I put around a kilo of honey, plus a block of honeycomb for good measure, into about 3 litres of water and left it alone to do its thing. Now, admittedly, it was a pretty gentle fermentation, but there was definitely some life in it. After a few days, it was still really sweet and wasn't showing signs of picking up the pace, so I can see how I would have to leave it for a long time to naturally work through those sugars and bring up the alcohol levels. I decided to see what difference commercial yeasts make, and, well, this did the job. Still on the sweet side, but I could instantly see why mead makers don't just rely on the natural yeasts in the honey, as after just another week, I had a perfectly nice mead. Not as strong or as clear as the mead Thomas makes, but quite drinkable and most definitely helping me to get through these uh, rather long nights at the moment. So, it turns out mead is not just wonderful stuff, but wonderfully simple too. But we'll get onto the honey again later in the series as I consider whether that final brew is going to be all grain or that honey-barley combination known as braggart. Now, whichever way I go with that, I knew at the start of this year that I was definitely going to need to work out how to get my barley or grain of some kind, as well as understand how peasant Ben would have gone about making his beer thousands of years ago. Martin gave a great introduction to this in episode one, but I need to know more about those early grain producers and, importantly, how they malted their barley. Now, if you're not familiar with the process of malting, it's relatively straightforward, but it does take time and skill. Effectively, you soak your barley or wheat in water until it starts to germinate, letting the plant start to develop. This causes the grain to create the enzymes that we'll need when we're going to brew, as these are used to convert starch into sugar when we're ready to make that beer or ale. The next stage is once the plant has started to grow and the roots and tip are coming out of the grain, you dry it quickly to stop the process and prevent it from using up that starch and sugar that we'll be needing. So, whilst I think I've got a good handle on how modern malting happens and what the process involves, I don't know enough about how my ancestors would have gone through that process all those thousands of years ago. So, time for another expert, I think. Now, my initial plan had been to go on a little bit of a road trip all the way up from Devon to just north of the Scottish mainland, Orkney to be precise, and I wanted to head up there because it is home to two particular things. Firstly, 
it has some of the best sites and evidence for Neolithic brewing and, secondly, it is also home to Merrin and Graham Dinley, a wife and husband team who have spent decades researching and testing early brewing, Merrin as an archaeologist and Graham as a home brewer. Now, that trip was scheduled for early spring, so obviously that didn't happen, which is a shame because as well as speaking to Merrin and Graham and seeing the sites firsthand, I was hoping to get hold of a particular variety of barley used on Orkney and try my hand growing it down here on my return. I always planned to try and forage for wild grains that I could potentially brew with, but I wanted to grow an older variety to see how they compared. Unfortunately, with lockdown kicking in, travelling was off the cuts, so I instead used some of my own organic seed from a previous year. I prepared the bed on my allotment, sowed it by hand, and, over the summer, watched the little guys grow and mature into barley just like they did in the first project. I'll be talking about the ingredients properly in episode 4, as there has been a lot to try and forage over the past few months. But the next thing we needed to find out about was what to do with the grain once we've got it. Remember, if we're really using just the ingredients I can find around me, then I'm not going to be able to rely on modern technology and laboratories to prepare my barley for brewing. I've got to look back in time to find a way. Whilst I couldn't go to Orkney, I was able to speak to Merrin and Graham remotely through the wonders of the internet. Now, I say wonders, a connection from rural Devon to Orkney is not exactly the best, but you work with what you've got. So, I started by asking Merrin how things got started for those earliest of Neolithic brewers. Well, grain processing began in the ancient Near East. That's what people call the, the Fertile Crescent. Um, that's what we call Palestine, Israel, the Tigris, yeah. Euphrates rivers. And that's where barley and wheat grew wild 10,000, 12,000 years ago. At that time, the British Isles were still under ice. So the earliest evidence for malt that I know of is 13,000 years ago over there in the Fertile Crescent, and it arrives in the British Isles, grain processing arrives in the British Isles around 6,000 BC. Okay. So in that time, there's been a lot of technological developments because the climate there is very different to the climate in Northern Europe. So they could have soaked the grain and begun it could have started to germinate and they could have made malt and dried it in the sun out in the ancient near east but here in northern europe you have to find a different way of drying it because we can't i know it's sunny today but it's not <laughs> yeah. always it's not always so and so therefore they at some point the technology of making malt and drying it changed mm -hmm. as it crossed europe and what would have been the difference and the different approach in drying out that, that malt if you weren't relying on the sun? What approach would they have taken? Well, this is they would have to have dried it in some sort of kiln. And uh, so you, you light a fire and then you let the hot air from the fire dry the grain. Now, this is a bit dangerous and sometimes your grain can catch fire and the evidence for making malt in the British Isles is exactly that. It's carbonized grain, which is obviously a failed drying of the malt. And often when the archaeobotanists look at 
discoveries of 6,000-year-old carbonised grain. Large amounts. Large amounts of it in Britain. The embryos are missing, which indicates that what you've got here is grain that's begun to germinate, therefore it's malt. Okay. And how did the ancient barley differ from what we use nowadays as well? Very much smaller and skinnier. Yes, yes. Many years ago, I was sent six carbonised barley grains from a site called Balbridey in Scotland. Um, and they were really, really tiny. Barely bigger than grape seeds. Yes. Oh, wow, that really is small, isn't it? Yes, really tiny, tiny, skinny. And, and when I looked at these, I actually got access to a scanning electron microscope and I looked at a couple of these grains and there were thousands of carbonised grains found in this rectangular timber building that's about 6,000 years old, um, the remains of it. Um, I saw that the embryos were missing. So it does look as though it's malted grain and it's carbonised because there must have been an accident. Mm. The building burnt down, it seems. Failed kilning. It's a common fate of most malt kilns. Yeah. And those grains then, I'm guessing, had a lot less sugar in if they were much smaller uh, compared to modern, modern varieties. Yes, they, I mean, they would have germinated in the same way. And the, you know, the processes going on inside the grain would be the same. But tiny, tiny little grains. And is that a challenge you mentioned with these these barns and, and buildings and, and equipment being burned down and, and there's little evidence left. Is that a big problem in trying to date and find out about the processes? There's just not very much evidence of it. So there is minimal evidence for, for brewing because um, unless you have an accident in the kilning like that and you get the carbonised grains, all the grain is going to be consumed. It, it goes into the mash tun uh, you mix it with hot water, then you, you know, separate the hot water from the grains. The spent grain gets fed to animals, they eat it, so that evidence is gone. And people will drink the ale, so that's gone. The only thing that you have uh, is the pottery, which is quite interesting. In Neolithic Britain, throughout Neolithic Britain, there's a, a kind of pottery it's large bucket-shaped pots. They're called groovedware because of the decoration on them. One of these groovedware pots was found at Scarabray, and it was standing beside the hearth. And this was really what, this was the moment that got me going on my research into this, because I saw a picture of it in um, an archaeological report worked out how big it was and it could have held 30 gallons well over 20 over 20 base yeah. let's say 25 gallons why did they need pots like that in neolithic britain and why is it by the fire and why was it by the fire so that to me was fairly <clears> good <throat> evidence that you've potentially got a vessel for fermenting a barley wort if you go down now travel down closer to you to durrington walls which is a, a big settlement beside Stonehenge. And there they have found hundreds of large groovedware pots. Some of them a bit smaller than the one from Scarabray. They average about eight, nine, maybe 10 yeah. gallons. 
So you've got very, very little evidence. You've got pottery. You've got carbonized grain from a failed kilning. You've got potentially barn-like buildings that... Yeah, and at Durrington Walls, you've got carried pig teeth. Yes. When they excavated at Durrington Walls, they found that the, the pig's teeth had dental caries as if they'd been eating something sweet. The archaeologists excavating the site interpreted that as the pigs were fed with honey. But I think the source of sweetness was much more likely to have been spent grain. So if they had those large grooveware pots, what would have been very early ales? What would they have been mashed in and then fermented? Well, they'd be fermented in the grooveware pots. Yeah. As to what they were mashed in, I, it's a very good question. Possibly grooveware pots or possibly, for a larger mashing, a coerno, a hollowed-out wooden log. Uh, similar to the Scandinavian uh, farmhouse yep. Yep. brewing. It's quite... Uh... An interesting thought when you know that there is still a living tradition of using hollowed out logs in northern Europe. I wonder if they did it in Neolithic Britain, if they used a hollowed out log as a, a mash tun. I don't know. If you did, then you would have to use hot rocks to heat the mash. Because if you've got any sort of container that you can't put over a fire, then you have to heat the mash with hot rocks. And so if they did that, there would be very little evidence of a mash ton. Apart from the hot rocks. Mm. Mm. Fire-cracked stones. Well, You've yeah. hit upon the, the real problem of recreating Neolithic brewing um, equipment because it, some of it has just rotted away if it was made of wood. Um, Residue analysis, you might be able to, to find the use of a pot for either mashing or fermentation. I still think that this is the main reason for Neolithic people growing grain in the first place, was to make malt and malt sugars and ferment it. And I've been studying this for years, and I'm still unpicking the details. Mm -hmm. Once you get into the Bronze Age, the evidence becomes a lot clearer because you've got these um, phylactophy, which are troughs sunk into the ground, and they're surrounded by a pile of fire-cracked rocks. So when you get to the Bronze Age, there's much clearer evidence that people were using grain to malt and make an ale with. But I would, I would just say this. There's a couple of thousand years between the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, and I find it very hard to believe that people were growing grain in Britain for 2,000 years before they realised they could malt, mash and ferment with it. So I don't necessarily think they were drinking, they, they weren't sitting down at the end of every day and, oh, and no. saying, let's have a beer. I think it was a very, very special drink don't in the Neolithic, uh, in certainly Neolithic Britain. Because first of all, you've got to think about how much grain you've got to grow to provide you with sufficient malt to make sufficient ale. Nobody knows how much grain they were growing in Neolithic Britain. Probably, certainly not as much as we grow today, probably less. And this makes me think that barley itself was a sacred crop and the drink that you could make with it was something very special. Yeah, and on that process as well, um, 
am I right in thinking there wouldn't have been a boil phase as there is in modern brewing? No, I don't think so. I doubt it. Boiling is a hop feature to uh, activate and isomerize the alpha acids and the hops. It's unnecessary for gruit ales. Mm. We think they might have used meadow sweet as instead of, you know, obviously there were no hops. Hops are a, a medieval introduction. So ale is unhopped, beer is hopped, and ale would have been made with herbs and meadow sweet pollen was found in a bronze age pot so this was the evidence that we worked with when we recreated years ago uh, a, a neolithic style ale we used meadow sweet now th this is interesting because what you're interested in is i mean we've talked about the archaeological evidence and i think quite enough what you're interested in is how you can make something that you can drink that will be as close as you can possibly get to what the earliest brewers in Devon yeah, yep. were, make, were, were making and what they were drinking. And I think Meadowsweet has definitely got to be on the list of um, possible plants that they could have used to preserve. I remember an experiment we did years mm. ago in Manchester Graham took some wort and you fermented it mm -hmm. and you put some you just fermented. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it went rotten overnight. Well, no, in three or four days it's going stale and horrible. Yeah. But the one that you put meadow sweet in yeah. was drinkable Five, for how long? Weeks. Weeks. Oh, really? Meadow sweet is a very good preservative. Oh, wow. See, my understanding was that hops would have arrived in the sort of, well, the 13th century or so and revolutionised the storage of our ale. But actually, it could well be, and I'm, I'm sure I'll find out for myself, that it was coping just fine to an extent with meadow sweet or with, with other local herbs. Yes. So we've got the, got the malt. Uh, yep. We've spoken about um, meadow sweet. Um, the third big ingredient then really is the yeast. What was the understanding about fermentation and, and how was yeast managed uh, back then? But from the Middle Ages and certainly before then, I think it was considered to be some sort of sacred or religious or magical thing, yeast. How would they store it? Probably dry. There's an intriguing thing here. In the Bronze Age, there's a lot of cinnary urns. This is um, cremations put into a large food vessel. They're always stored upside down. Now, if they were repurposed fermenting vessels, it makes sense to store the vessel upside down so that it dries out, the yeast preserves, and it doesn't get infected with dust. Well, it would be like a magic pot. If, yes. you've, if you ferment in a pot, and then the yeast dries on the inside surface of the pot, when you put a sweet wort in, it's going to the yeast will activate, and, and essentially you've got pure magic there, haven't you? You've got a magic pot that will ferment. There's a tradition in the Western Isles of uh, stirring the fermenting brew with a hazel stick, and then you dry, you keep that hazel stick nice and dry, mm -hmm. and then when you want to brew again, you stir the wort with this hazel stick. And which has got yeast on, invisibly. And again, you've got a magic stick that yes. will start the ferment. And I'm sure you've come across 
the much more modern equivalent of storing yeast, which mm-hmm. is these Kvik rings. Mm, yes. yes. But I actually tried this experiment with a stick. I called it a magic spoon. I actually did it. It works. You know, stir the ferment with a wooden spoon, hang it up, let it dry, start the next one with it. It works. It's slow, but it works. Yeah, so if I, if I was putting together that recipe... How could I get as close as possible to the original grain, uh, or the grain bill, I suppose, the recipe they would have used back then? Brown malt is malt that's dried with a fire made of wood. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is how malt was mostly made um, until the Industrial Revolution. Revolution. Mm -hmm. And when you use uh, wood, you get a smoky fire and the it gives a taste to the malt. It can make a smoky malt. And this is brown malt. Mm-hmm. When they started using coke in the Industrial Revolution, it didn't give the same colour and flavour to the malt. And that's where we get pale malt from. Yeah. And this brown malt must be a very powerful element of the taste of your Neolithic ale. Is is Yes, you've got to pick the grain and malt it, but drying it with, with a wood fire or straw, or straw mm. is going to give your malt a different flavour and that flavour will come through to the beer. So, yeah, I think that's... It's the unsung hero, isn't it, really, the malt, I think, of it all, because imagine how heartbreaking it would be to grow it and harvest it and then make a mistake in the malting. Mm. You know, all that effort. Yeah, I can imagine how it would be, they would really want to get that right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's a huge, huge skill. Yeah. Well, that was one of the, um, that was one of the big things for driving this, this second series, is that when I did the growing beer, it was done uh, to modern approaches mm. and with modern equipment. Um, and so when I had my own barley then, we used the pilot plant that Chris had to malt it. Um, but of course, I want to do this again now without that option available. So I'm imagining at the moment having a large, very large sheet of something laying out either in the garden or in the house somewhere and gently trying to heat it to try and dry out that malt myself. I'm not sure my wife's going to think of this. Um, I haven't told her that bit yet. Uh, uh, but but yeah, I'll work it away somewhere, oh, I'm sure. For drying the malt, you've got to pass warm, dry air through a bed of green malt to dry it. You can't just heat it. Okay. Now, this is something that people try and recreate malting kilns, and Merrin's got a good blog about this one. They frequently think you just heat the grain. But indeed, if you try drying it just by heating it, you get warm, wet grain. It doesn't work. Yeah, that does make sense. That makes complete sense. Um, I used to think that, that you, you just malt, you know, you, you germinate the grain on a malting floor and then you dry it in a kiln. In, in Norway, they have a slightly different system. And I think if you look at um, Lars's blog, and if you get in touch with Lars, Lars Marius Garshol, he's got some very good um, he's got some very very good blogs about making malt. And there are people who still make their own malt in Norway. However, it's it's beginning to become less popular as it's so much easier to just buy your malt from a maltster. Mm. But there are a few people who still make malt on a small domestic scale. And actually, if you're thinking of, of, of malting for yourself at home, 
maybe enough for five gallons. I think it's doable. Okay. So, <laughs> to to <laughs> make my Neolithic ale, yeah. I'm looking at getting hold of the barley, malted or unmalted. Yeah. Um, potentially some meadow sweet in there as well. I need to get an appropriate yeast strain, a porous wooden stick, <laughs> either a large piece of pottery or a tree trunk. Well, that's my checklist, if I'm right. <laughs> You've got oh, it. Simple oh, and garbage. some hot rock, rocks as well. Lots of rocks too. Oh, rocks and fire. Yeah, I mean, it's oh. it's it's. Last night, I was wondering what what you were thinking of using as equipment because, in some respects, we cheated. We used when we made our recreated meadow sweet ale. We did use plastic buckets. Yes, and purchased malt. And, and we and and the malt was was made. You know. Yeah, I think I'm. I really look forward to how you're you're you're, you're going to do this because I know you're a brewer, and because I followed your your earlier brewing story where you grew you grew your own grain in, in yes. allotment. Yeah, you did that. So this is going to be very similar to that. But I think if you're going to use authentic equipment, then yes, you you you've got the checklist there. Well, it sounds to me like I have got a much much clearer. Uh, checklist. I just need to crack on once once I've got the grain. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good luck. Perfect. A massive thank you to Marin and Graham. There, I'd like to point out that I did say thank you at the time, but a few little bits of our conversation didn't come across too well due to the connection, and that happened to be one of them. So I assure you that I didn't just wait until I got what I needed and hung up on them. So anyway, crikey, there is a lot to unpack there. To brew like Peasant Ben, there are several things I'm going to have to do myself, things that you and I probably take for granted. Once I've harvested my grain, be it foraged or grown, I'm going to need to malt it myself. That is, get the grain to start growing, create all those enzymes that will be needed later in the mash stage, but then dry it out and kill the grain so it doesn't use those sugars itself. I'm then going to need to do that mash myself, which is where we soak the grains in hot water, about 65 degrees centigrade, so that we can access those sugars locked away in the grain. Now, I'll have to use an appropriately primitive way of heating up that water and those grains before then fermenting them in some kind of basic vessel. Now, this is where I have hugely underestimated what I need to do in the second half of this project. I knew that I'd have to go through several different steps or processes to make this all work, but I just hadn't considered the equipment available to me. If I'm going to take this seriously, then I'm not going to be able to use my stainless steel and plastic equipment to make this ale, because that's a very contemporary, modern approach. This project just got a lot trickier, as I think I'm going to need to make the various vessels and tools I'll need to brew with myself, using just the natural materials from my local environment, which brings us quite nicely to why I am sat here at now nearly three o'clock in the morning. I am keeping a close eye on my first raw ale. You may remember Martin talk about raw ale, that is, ale without hops that doesn't need to be boiled. Well, I'm trying a quick test of this. I just added crushed barley to water heated to that 65 degrees centigrade, let it mash for about an hour, then after it had cooled down, I added yeast. I'm also testing an old farmhouse yeast that ferments very, very quickly, but it needs to be kept warm to do its job. It's quite exciting, but I'll explain more about that next time, because for now, 
I'm trying to get my head around that equipment challenge still. Even as I started this little trial, it dawned on me that I'm doing it with a plastic fermentation vessel with an airlock and a thermometer. I was also planning to put it into a heated cupboard with a temperature controller to keep it nice and toasty. Well, all of this would not have been available to me three or four thousand years ago, so I have got some serious research and planning to do before I consider how to make that final brew. One thing I can do right now, though, is do what Peasant Ben would have done and find out if I can use my fireplace for a heat source rather than anything more modern. Marin and Graham mentioned finding large pots by the fire, so hopefully whatever equipment I use and whatever yeast I end up with, I'll know if it's possible to keep a fermentation bubbling away next to the fire. Now, <laughs> the downside to this cunning plan is that I therefore need to keep my log burner going and maintain 35 degrees centigrade in the fermentation, which means chucking in a couple of logs every hour or so. It is going to be a long night, and I should probably wrap this up before sleep deprivation kicks in and I start making even less sense. Remember, if you're listening to this free podcast, please help me to share our story with a few more people. Rating and linking from social media makes a big difference and is much appreciated. Thank you to BREF for their support, to Merrin and Graham for their guidance, and of course, to you for keeping me company in these wee small hours. Next time, we'll be sorting out the ingredients, taking a walk on the wild side as I go foraging for herbs and plants. I'll update you on how the hunt for barley has gone, and we'll find out if my raw ale and yeast are actually worth getting excited about, or <laughs> if not sleeping properly for three days has caused me to lose my mind. Goodbye.